In this episode of 92i Talks, Matthew Broderick, along with two special guests, co-star Giza Roig and director Sean Snyder, discuss their new film, To Dust, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf. The conversation was recorded on January 20th, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So, I will begin with a question about the origins of the film and the casting. And before we finish tonight, of course, we will take questions from the audience as well. Um, this is one of the more curious films that I've seen in the past year. I can't categorize it as easily as most of the movies that I see, whether studio or independent. And I do want to know for you, Sean, what was the origin of this? And just one bit of background, it's a first feature. Sean Snyder did his MFA at NYU. Um, made award-winning short films, um, but this is uh, sort of the beginning of a career, I think. Thank you. To hear sure. you say that is incredible. Um, the, the earliest seeds of the film um, uh, were planted when I, when I lost my mom. That's Linda Snyder at, at the end of the movie 10 years ago. Um, and I come... Uh, from a Reformed Jewish background, which certainly isn't Hasidic, um, but nonetheless uh, mourned my mother in, in the Jewish way. And I've always found that the Jewish guidelines for, for grief um, are incredibly profound and incredibly um, beautiful and wise. Uh, and yet, nonetheless, I found my own grief spilling outside of the, the boundaries. Um, uh, so much so that it's, that it's 10 years on and I still grieve my mom every single day. And, and I'm grateful for that grief. I don't try to purge it. I love the way that, that it evolves um, and the way that it keeps her, her present. Um, and at the same, the, the same time and in the same vein, I've never felt comfort at my mom's grave. It's been 10 years and I've probably been there less than five times. And even from, from the funeral on, there's only this sense of, uh, this persistent awareness of the biological entity that was once my mom. I, I don't feel like I'm honoring her there necessarily, and I, and I don't feel her presence there. I feel that, that I'm honoring her in my life, and I feel her presence in my life and, um, in so many ways. I have a, a daughter who's about to turn four, uh, the opportunity to, to pursue my dreams, the opportunity to process through, through art. Um, and I, you know, and I realized if, if you take kind of these, these two threads, I, I had these thoughts which were incredibly morbid. And, and you look at the Jewish timeline for grief and it says for seven days you do this and for 30 days you do this. And I was finding myself grafting over that timeline. Well, what's my mom's body look like at seven days? What does my mom's body look like at 30 days? And I think that this is a, a feeling and a question that we all ask ourselves and we feel embarrassed by. And we live in a, a society and a culture that... that um, poeticizes and, and, and tries to forestall the realities of death. And the thought was that if you stared it in its face, and, and I repressed those feelings as well, but if you were to stare those feeling, those thoughts and, and that reality in its face, that A, you should have permission to, and B, there might be something beautiful and spiritual in its own right in that, in that process and in that investigation. Um, so those were, yeah, those, that's where it all started. And, and I, I gather that you co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Jason Begay. Jason Begay, who's here, oh, who just became an uncle halfway through 
the screening times <laughs> over. Well, good. <laughs> Life in the midst of exactly. uh, a story of death. Yeah. But indeed, this is not a film about a young man mourning a mother. It becomes very much about a Hasidic cantor mourning his wife and his rather um, complicated relationship to a biology teacher. And we saw tonight, you know, clips from your 35-plus-year career. I know you get offered a lot of t uh, stage and film roles. What led you to accept this particular role of, of Albert? Um, well, I just th I thought it was very interesting. I had never read anything like it, and um, I and uh, I met Sean and liked him. I and I was a, I'd seen um, uh, Saul. What's it called? I forgot. Son of Saul. Right, which was so wonderful, and I wanted to work with Geza, and um, and I liked the script. I thought it was a it was a very good-hearted and very. Um, Aside from being moving and all those things may be funny, and uh, it's shot in Staten Island, so I thought, well, that's not that far. And um, it is, and it isn't. It is, right? and it isn't. Yeah. Very true. That's very profound. <laughs> Staten Island is very far away in a lot of ways. I didn't know that when we started making the film. <laughs> and Kesa. I don't know what this looked like on paper, but you imbue the character of Shmuel with such a personal intensity. Um, when you read the script, you felt that you would be able to connect to this character, or was it also that you wanted to work with Sean? Right away. Right away? Yeah, I, I joined this project really early on. I actually grew my beard for the role. This, this was my own beard, and it took me a year or something. And the first- How long did that beard take? The length of that beard? Is how long? I would say a year. A year. Yeah. Yeah. The payas wasn't and mine, but the those beard were was. Glued on. I saw them. <laughs> yeah, they, that, that was fake. Um, and uh, the first version of the script I read was much more lengthy, so I I can say that it was really great that we drank uh, lots of coffee, and I really became a friend of Sean and Jason as well, and talked over certain things we had to, as you know, this is a $1 million movie, very, very low budget. And, and, and so we had to cut it down. I mean, they had to cut it down. And uh, so I was a fellow traveler of, of the shaping and the morphing of the script. And I couldn't wait to start. My agent didn't like at all that I'm growing this beard because it costed me rolls. But this was a very unique, unique uh, script and I really wanted to be part of it. I can understand that. And Sean, when you decided to cast these two people, were they images that appeared their faces while you were writing the script with Jason Begay, or was it after the fact? Was it because you saw Son of Saul? Was there something in Matthew Broderick's career that led you to feel he'd be right? Well, the, at the stage that we were writing the script, I mean, you're, you're daydreaming. We, we wound up winning this $100,000 grant from the Alfred Pete Sloan Foundation. And the plan A was always to go off into in, the woods with my film school classmates and shoot this movie for $100,000. So almost, you know, you're daydreaming, but almost protectively, you're not putting faces there because <laughs> you, you want to keep it pure and you want to keep your, your aspirations realistic. Um, uh, when, when Geza and I met early on, it was uh, 
because of a mutual friend, a mentor of mine at, at Sony Pictures Classics, and they had just purchased Son of Solid Can, and I had just, uh, Jason and I had just completed the script, and he had just read the script, and said, you guys have to meet. And I think we heard about each other for a handful of months before, before we finally met. Um, and before we met, I got to see a press screening of, of Son of Saul, and we all know how heart-wrenching that film is. I feel like I was the only person who ever watched that movie trying to figure out if, if Guess It Could Be Funny, um, uh, which is an interesting lens to watch that movie on because, because my, my feeling about it, well, there's nothing funny about that film, is that Geza had this Chaplin-esque control of, of his body. The way he, he skirted death and moved throughout that world um, was masterful and cl clown-like in, in the most beautiful of ways. Um, and then when we met over drinks, uh, over, no, over a lunch with um, our, our friend, uh, you hadn't read the script yet. Um, we kind of circumambulated the, the, the conversation, and I basically waited until you had read the script with bated breath, because I know of your own religiosity, and the script, while it deals in, in blasphemy and, and dabbles in blasphemy, is never intended to, to disrespect or to lampoon. Um, and so when you uh, shouted back in the affirmative, um, it was not only validating be, because there's the possibility of working with this brilliant man, but because it was, but because it was, you know, it felt like we were doing something right with the script. Um, I only learned about the, you know, the intersections of uh, why you were the only person who could play this role, you know, subsequently, like peeling layers of onions in the months after we met, I stumbled across the New Yorker article. Yeah, <laughs> that that I'm, I'm washing corpse, yeah. Yeah, you, that, that, that Geza is the member of a Hebra Kadisha. Um, and, and in so many ways, it was so perfect. And uh, even even though it, you know there were conversations, there was never an audition. Um, and even though you spoke so few words, and those few words were in Hungarian, there was just this leap of faith that that this English would play beautifully in your mouth. Um, when uh, the script um, found its champions. We, we won this grant through the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and it was eligible uh, for another award through the, the Sloan Foundation through Tribeca. And Emily Mortimer, who's, who's here tonight, was on the jury at Tribeca. And I revere her career. And um, I woke up on a Saturday morning all bleary-eyed, because I had a, a, my daughter was less than one years old, to uh, an email from Emily. And Alessandro Novola, her husband, whose career I also revere, and they said, Emily said that I read your script uh, on this jury reading a bunch of science scripts, and we want to help you make your movie. And I read it again, and I read that email again. And um, we met a week later and found all of our sort of kindred spirituality. And then all of a sudden, you know, Sean, let's let's get out of the daydreaming place, and who do we want to approach for Albert? And when we thought about Matthew, it was this epiphany um, of how perfect it would be, because I think that there is enough of a, of a thread to your previous work, but I think that there's something new happening in this film um, that, that broadens on, on that. Um, and then we met, obviously, and, and felt kindred and... and, and 
this sort of leap of faith that we dived into it together. And, and, and these two are an odd couple on screen, in some ways an odd couple in, in life. And, and I remember you saying at some rehearsal this idea of how do we, you know, I was saying how do we you know, figure out the tone um, because this is a tonal tightrope of a film and, and how do we figure out the, the style of acting and you said we, we just leap and we do it. We, you know, these things figure themselves out and you kind of have, have faith. Um, I will add uh, that for, for both of uh, um, Geza and Matthew, I think that the film is, is and, and you've said similar things, the inverse of Son of Saul in a way, which is about a, a man in the most inhumane conditions who, who insists on a proper Jewish burial and our movie is about someone who's uh, you know, questionably unsatisfied with a proper Jewish burial. Um, and insofar as I haven't been thinking about election, you know, the film ab about a Boy Scout who unravels and, and you know, becomes full-blown misanthrope, yeah. that this is almost the inverse of... Yeah, he gets a little, a little better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And by the way, I, I just want to acknowledge, because I didn't even know they were going to be here tonight, but I'm such a fan of Emily Mortimer's work as, as an actor, and I think Alessandro Nivola gave one of the best performances of 2018 as the rabbi in Disobedience. If they're here, could you just stand up and take a little bow, the two of you wonderful producers in the back? Back there. Because... <laughs> uh, I think every independent film needs godparents, and even though that's not the primary identity for Nivola or Mortimer, it's a very welcome identity in addition to the others. Well, okay, so we're talking about um, the kind of roles you've played, and I think you've excelled at playing guys who are not quite heroic. Mm. Um, you mentioned election, we showed a clip from You Can Count On Me, where Matthew Broderick plays an anal bank manager who actually has sex with one of his bickering employees, Laura Linney, and then fires her. Um, wonderful character. And then <laughs> I, a, a few others that, because Helen Hunt was a guest in this series uh, two years ago, Then She Found Me, you're the juvenile husband who then yeah. leaves her. Um, I dated Helen Hunt, so that's, that's accurate, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess for me the question is, do you enjoy playing this kind of part, or do you wish that you were not necessarily the go-to guy for the charming Nebish role? Um, wait a minute, which I, I, I lost track of what the, the, the playing, <laughs> Which role do I Playing regret? parts where you're either like a beleaguered husband yeah. or um, very far from heroic in that mm. circumstances kind of yeah, buffet yeah. you and not I know the what you mean. best traits of personality emerge. Yeah, um... Well, I don't like to repeat too often, you know, so I, 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 don't, I try not to think of it like that. Oh, this is a nebbish or whatever. Uh, like, I lucked, I, I mean, Albert I thought of as a new person, you know, and um, I don't try to connect them. Okay. And, I, and I try to find things that are challenging. Um, but that said, of course, I am who I am, and I suit certain roles, and... Uh, if you have any uh, success in something, uh, of course the instinct is to try again, you know, or, or, or people, both people casting you and within yourself. Um, so you want to try to do new things and also not do such new things that you're just uh, messing around in a way. You know, it has, to, it has to be in you to do it. So you sort of, gradually get out of yourself and, and put a toe on different 
water and try that and, and try to grow. How did that sound, Emily? <laughs> well, I, it, it makes total sense. But you also, back in 96, directed mm. a film, Infinity, which I thought was really quite good, um, about the uh, physicist Richard Feynman. Fine. Feynman, yeah. Um, mm. With Patricia Arquette playing your, your wife. Right. And um, do you sometimes these days, because it's been over 20 years, feel like you'd like to direct something, whether starring yourself or not, because then you can shape it a little bit more deeply. Yeah, sometimes I think about that. I haven't for a while, but um, you know, acting is is enough. Like it's a full job. So that time I felt it was very hard to do all of that to have a large role and uh, and direct and you know not have a lot of money and all sorts of things. Um, but I, I, I'm always curious about it. I used to direct little plays, too, which I liked. I enjoy working with actors. And um, if I had an idea, I just don't have an idea lately. But if I did, I would try to get something made. And yeah, maybe I would direct again. Yeah, I, I thought it was actually quite well directed. I remember seeing it way back when. Um, in did terms my best. <laughs> yes, Giza. What I would like to see is a movie, What's Going On? After this, between the two of them, Albert and Shmuel, I always wonder that. Right after where we end the movie, her being buried on the island, and and I wonder, are these two guys gonna meet ever again? Do they grab a coffee ever, or this is all done and it was sort of a friendship for one project? Because I always felt, reading the script and acting also the role that I'm kind of a bad friend. I'm taking advantage, I'm using him, and, and really sort of like sucking all the goods out of him. And I never ask, like, what about you, <laughs> right? So now that my whole thing, wound and craziness and madness with griefing is, is sort of done and I sort of healed, I wonder if there could be maybe Sequel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the first time in real pieces that I've had an actor sort of pitch, no. pitch the director for a no, sequel. I, this is good. I, I just, I just honestly, I'm, I'm just super curious who picks, if, if Shmuel picks up the phone and, and what that conversation would look like if they're sitting in a, in, in a diner and just like, now that we have nothing to do, right? Is there anything we can say to each other? I'm just curious. Hmm. It's an interesting question. They're from such different worlds, you kind of yeah. have a feeling that they, yeah. what would happen yeah. if they met? Yeah. Probably very little. Yeah, and, and the, I mean, the ambiguity is, is, but it'd be is deliberate, but there's a really, you know. I'll do it. Either beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we were just at the Miami Jewish Film Festival in Florida, and some guy comes up to me after the screening and then has Facebooked me repeatedly since about, I want to see he gets married to the widow and what, <laughs> yeah, and I have money. <laughs> Where's my job? <laughs> I'm in that. Um, and I said, said that, you know, I, I kind of, the ambiguity is deliberate. You know, is, is it tragic? Is it, even if they never are friends again, is it, is it beautiful? And I, you know, I, I do think that there is, you know, I always kind of found um, this, this turning point in the film where, where your heart breaks for Albert. Um, we on set. It, it, it's when you're dropping f bomb after f bomb. Yeah. And we and we negotiated that. I remember being on set yeah. talking about how just you they know, wanted me curse me much more. I I, I tried to like no please. He's like a I'll trade you a, he, he doesn't talk like that. 
But what? But the way that I always saw it, and maybe maybe I you know won you over was that you you know Albert's been trying to learn and speak your language empathetically, and it's, yeah. it's your way of speaking Albert's language. But doesn't it happen in life that that people, for example, are in army or in a war, and they become so important for each other, and and then they leave the army and they meet up, and there is how's the fam? <laughs> Good. Yours? Good. You know, they saved each other's lives. They were so important at one point, but there's no way to get to that level ever again. And it's, it's so. But I feel like Shmuel has an interest in talking to somebody from outside or something. Maybe he would want. Yeah, so I think if that I if, I definitely, if there would be another one, that should be more about Albert than Shmuel. That's, that's just well deserved, yeah. right? So and makes sense. And my divorce, to... like I'm divorced. Well, yeah, where so... did I get that bathrobe from? <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? That's a question. <laughs> I don't know. Did I ever answer that for you, or did I leave that to you? I don't think I thought to ask it, I, yeah. but um, I am asking now. From Marshalls. Um, I don't... No, I think you're right. It's your ex-wife. It's my wife's, yeah. I hope. It's my wife's uh, bathrobe, I thought. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So she, I have an She left you. you know she that. left me. She left you. Yeah. That's not in the, in that's the a, That's not even a question. <laughs> We're brainstorming. Do <laughs> uh, you listen, have any ideas for the sequel? Actually, yes, um, because okay. the, the, there's in the background the whole notion of finding a new wife for Shmuel. The idea in the Orthodox world is if you have children, and this was a little bit the background of another wonderful film two years ago, Menasha, completely in Yiddish, which was also about a widower in the Hasidic community who was being pushed to marry another woman because he had a son and it, there was all sorts of tension. But it would be pretty nifty, especially because there's a scene of the mother of Shmuel asking Albert, are you Jewish? Uh, yes, yes. You know, they want to find a nice Jewish girl for Albert too. Maybe that could be <laughs> That's a good some idea. point of departure. This is, this is not my forte, I teach film history. <laughs> so in any case, um, to come back to the kinds of things that really interest me, um, I mean, you essentially have composed a film about decomposition. I mean, there's a, a musical element to this film that I felt from the very beginning when you give us the two epigraphs. Um, one is from Kohelet about dust, and the other is Jethro Tull. Um, and after we hear the opening sounds of a hospital beeping in the background, then you have this, um, the female, um, I'm just trying to find it, oh yeah, yeah. The female voiceover song in Hebrew, it brings us into the Jewish ritual of preparing the corpse for burial. The washing of the corpse is accompanied also by what almost sounds like a, a rock song that lightens the scene. So often in the film, I felt that the soundtrack and especially the music were a very important narrative component. Could you talk a little about that? Um, absolutely. I, the Beni Beni, which is the song that, that is begins with a female's voice and ends with um, Geza and Shmuel singing it. Um, there's a lot of threads to go on here, but I, but I do love this, this story. In the script, the movie didn't start with that, that song. It always ended with, with Geza singing that song. And um, when we had the idea in the edit to, to start the movie that way, and that maybe this is this disembodied voice of Rivka, and maybe Rivka sang this song to... Uh, to her sons. Um, I had this gut instinct. I used to be a singer-songwriter, 
And um, I had this friend uh, who's still a singer-songwriter in San Francisco, and it was her voice that I, I said, I think that it would be perfect, and she's not Jewish. So she had to take um, Geza's recording of it and uh, learn it by, you know, not only the, the, um, the words, but the exact phrasing by the way that Geza sang it. And when she sent the song back to me, um, it was haunting, and there was almost this epiphany that happened listening to it, because it was, exact, it was this female version exactly, phrase for phrase, breath for breath, um, you know, uh, elaboration per elaboration, how Geza did it. And in the narrative of, of the film, when you're placing her before him, singing it, and then you, you kind of have this idea of, of the Dybbuk, too. It's Geza who's singing it exactly like she's singing it. And there does become a question to, to me, you know, uh, about a whole other thread, the, the Dybbuk and, and the poetry and the folklore of the Dybbuk, is does grief happen when you, when you expel the Dybbuk or when you embody it? It's almost like she's singing through him at the end. Um, and that was all just, you know, this whole beautiful poetic arc through, through music. Um, and it was also very, very important. So, so the song over the Tahara, the body preparation sequence, is a Tom Waits song, Blow and Blow. In the original script, there were a handful of Tom Waits songs, and I had this vision that, that we would get Tom Waits to sing his own songs in Yiddish. Um, that didn't happen, but the, but the importance and, and, and the earthiness of his voice and the heartbreaking, lived-in quality of it and also sort of the, the humor carnivalesque quality of the song somehow just seemed appropriate, let alone the, the lyrics. And as a songwriter, the lyrics are important, this idea of, of blow, wind, blow, and, and you have this idea of, of the wind isn't the wind of fate. And in Hebrew, wind is ruach, and that could be the spirit of God. And what is the wind that's, that's blowing? Is it her soul leaving her body? Uh, and, and we took, I worked with this incredible composer who, you know, there was a lot of ethnomusicology in it to some extent, because I said, let's take Tom Waits and maybe we take some B-horror, and then we take Jewish music, but not in your obvious klezmer way. Like if we, if we how do we keep the Jewishness and the Jewish DNA there? Is it um, Jewish melodies played by non-Jewish instruments? Is it, uh, not, uh, is it Jewish instruments playing non-Jewish scales? And I threw out these, all these abstractions to her, and she sort of pieced it together into this beautiful, haunting, What's her poetic name? Ariel. Ariel Marks. Ariel Wright. She's brilliant. Just, I just wanted to say her name, yeah. because we're talking about her song. Very important point. And that song, by the way, Bernie Bernie, it's from my grandfather. It was, it was a different song in the script, and then one day Geza said, uh, try this on for size. He recorded it into his iPhone and... Say, say this again, it was for your grandfather? No, my grandfather used to sing it to me. Ah, it okay. My, the lullaby. Mm -hmm. That makes it pretty personal indeed. Yeah. In terms of the personal quality, Geza, when I saw the film in Tribeca, I actually asked you this right away. It seemed to me, perhaps more than coincidental, that right after playing this character in Son of Saul, who obsessively feels that he has to bury a boy in Auschwitz according to Jewish ritual, even though it is utterly irrational and impossible, that's one kind of obsessive character that you're playing in here. Another, again, intensely obsessive need to bury or to understand the burial properly. Do you think it is a coincidence that you're playing characters who are hovering 
between life and death. I um, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, because sometimes I, I, I don't know you well, but I know that your spirituality is intense. So I don't know if this is something you can address. I don't know. My, my wife could answer that much uh, better because I, I try to be, you know, sort of uh, not to be a, a, a burden on anybody. And, and, uh, but it's true that, that uh, I, am, I am being asked to do these sort of things. And privately, personally, I do care a, a lot about that. Not in an obsessive way, but I, I mean, the, isn't death is like on the table all the time. Uh, it's, it's just such a downer and we, it's in the way. If, you are, if you're feeling good, it's clearly in the way, right? But even if you're feeling shit, it's in the way too, because life is not like a switch that you can just turn off. You can only end it in a violent way, right? So it's it's even that doesn't gives itself so so easy. So I, I think we all at, at one point we were losing parents. At, you know that that's a very lucky thing if if uh, that we lose it late late in life. And but once we lose somebody we had really intimate relationship with, this sort of madness madness sits in what what Shmuel goes through, and that's why I think. There are not many, uh, you know, 20 years old in the audience because, because you have to be a little bit advanced in your age to, to really relate to this movie. And I'm right there. I'm 51 years old. And I also have two four years old. I have twins. And, and um, so these questions are just, you know, part of my daily reality. It's... it's, it's, it's um, it gives life value, the fact, the awareness of how fragile it is, and, and, and you know that then you give you know, thanks for every single breath, right? That makes total sense to me. Yeah. Actually, it reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you, Matthew, um, because I actually watched before this evening, we, Mark and I watched about 14 films with Matthew Broderick to prepare the clips. One of the, we watched the first part of A Life in the Theater. Mm. This was uh, David Mamet's play, and it was done as a television film starring Matthew Broderick and Jack Lemmon. And the actor you play has a photo of his father on the dressing room table, and that photo is of your father, James Broderick, who was an actor. And I was curious if indeed you even entered this profession partly or primarily because you were following in his footsteps. And if I'm not mistaken, your first stage role was in Horton Foote's play that your father was acting in um, yeah, right. on Valentine's Day, was yeah. it? So I, I was just curious, you know, in terms of bringing this back to your own personal life as well. Yeah. Um, uh, bringing what to my own personal life? In other words, um, that you became an actor oh. partly because of your father yeah. and was... Um, were you always, because of him, feeling that this is something that you wanted to do? Yeah. Um, I, it's a good question, and I'm not exactly sure, because um, my first job was with him. Um, that, my first paying job was a couple of years after that without him. Um, 
But when I was started acting was in high school in plays in high school, and um, he would come and watch them, and we would talk about parts and acting. And when I auditioned to uh, go to acting school, uh, he actually directed me and my friend in a scene. We worked on it a lot um, uh, for Uta Hagen. And um, so I was very, I was extremely close to my father. And uh, whether I would have become an actor without him, I have no idea. Probably not. I, even when I was little, I liked going to the theater and just being backstage. You know, if, if he was, I like to watch the show, but I also just like the feeling of the, I just like stages. I like being backstage for some reason since I was very little. And, um, so it's just part of who I am. Uh, and you know, just concerning death, my uh, father uh, died right when I started too. So uh, that's always been, uh, I learned about that people die pretty early as a lot of people do. Um, it was right when my first paying job, my father got sick right during previews. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's, that's part of me too. Um, in terms of the way that this film was shot, because I, I'm astounded that it was made for such a low budget, how long was the shoot? About six months. <laughs> that long? One, one day at a time, yeah. one day every month. It, um, it, we shot for uh, just 20 days. Wow. 20 days. Yeah. The film was, I'm, every step of the way, you know, I've, I've been pinching myself and then... You pinch yourself and then you have to do the, the work and you have to deal with the realities. Um, but it was, this whole thing was made on, on you know, I say love and, and miracles and... True. Uh, get and if he's such a sweet man is part of how it happened because uh, people working in sometimes uncomfortable, definitely low paying, except for Emily and Alessandra made a killing on it probably, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, and them too, though, really. Everybody was working for nothing and very hard. You know, these low-budget movies are every bit as hard or harder than big ones. But he's got a quality to him that everybody wants him to get it, I always right. felt. Right. So, like, the crew, the actors, everybody said, we, you know, one more. <laughs> Poor guy, we got to get him this thing. He's got to help him. He's got that quality. I don't mean that in a... Poor him feeling. It's just you want him. You want you want it to do good. You want to do good work around him. So I think I think you'll have a good career as a director because I think people want you to do well. Yeah. Well, it sounds like in addition to love yeah. and miracles, maybe the word is faith. Um, faith yeah. in the project. Yeah. Faith in you and faith in and, and something just, beyond. I mean, to be able to work with this level of of uh, collaborator at any point in one's career, and let alone at this career, and have this level of, of collaborator get into the trenches, like you said, very, you know, very uncomfortable. And I mean, I feel like one of the most difficult things to do as, as a director on this film, and maybe this, you know, we'll see as, as a career moves forward, if this remains true, is everyone wanted to do their best work. And all of the frustrations and the blood and sweat and tears came out of everyone wanting to do their best work. And when you're looking and saying, 
you know, when you're looking, you know, even at, at your production designer and saying, I, I, I know that that table isn't perfect, but if we don't move on right now, if you're looking at your cinematographer with Xavi Jimenez, who is this incredible cinematographer whose work I revered and, and then, you know, ended up on, on this film, um, and you're saying, I, I know it was a little bit out of focus, but we have to move on or else we're not gonna finish the movie. It, it'll be the best out of focus shot. You know, if, if we get the focus, it'll be the best in focus shot in a movie that never gets finished. When you're telling this level of collaborator as a first timer, you know, it's great. It's great enough. It's good enough. We have to move on. We're doing, you know, that's very, it was very hard to do. Was there, I, I have to say sure, that bo both Emily and Alessandro were, were at the shooting every day, yes. which I don't think producers do very often. So kudos, they, for, kudos for that. begging people to let us finish. Right, right. And there were, there were days when, I would say average, we, we did like seven, eight pages of the script a day, which is a lot. Yeah. There, there wasn't a day that, that didn't have some location move in it or didn't have, at, at minimum, one key set piece. And was there time for rehearsal? I don't remember. Not, not, not a lot. I, I, we had the good fortune. We, um, we met a few before. We met a few right? times yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was long enough before that, that I think it was nice because we met and we, we talked about it and then we let it rest. In my mom's painting studio. Your mom's, studio. Your mom's painting yeah, studio, which right. was incredible. You know, talking yeah. about our ancestors. Yeah, and, that's right. Um, Where are you going? What's wrong? It's boring? <laughs> What's that? Oh, no, somebody who's got accessoride waiting. No. Just kidding. We, we, we respect that. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is a very attentive group on the stage. They I have uh, audience hyper-awareness. I have a, a problem. <laughs> Anybody looks at their phone, I can, I can sense it. Before we open it up to questions from the audience, I, I am interested in, in, especially for you, because when I was looking at your filmography and noticed how many amazing directors you've worked with over the past 35 years or so, uh, I mean, I, I dotted, jotted down just a few of them, Mike Nichols, who for me is one of the truly great ones, and Sidney Lumet. We didn't have a clip from Family Business where Matthew Broderick co-starred with Sean Connery and Dustin Hoffman. Um, Warren Beatty, uh, that we have. One of my favorites, but we don't get to see much of his work, is Alan Rudolph. And in his Mrs. Parker in the Vicious Circle, he yeah. played Charles MacArthur. Right. Uh, ben Stiller with The Cable Guy, Alexander Payne, Judd Apatow even for, for Trainwreck. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is, Obviously, you have this wonderful feeling about Sean, but could you compare, you know, what is it that some of the greatest directors have done in terms of bringing out the best in you? And what is it about Sean that is either similar to any of the directors you've worked with or, or different? Yeah, um, they're all very different, you know, just like actors are. They, they all have their own... Uh, the, but all good ones, you have to, they really do watch. And um, you have to feel that you're being uh, watched. I don't know exactly how to put that. But um, the, you just, you know, in a, in a film, in a way, the, the uh, director is, is the audience. It's all the audience you have, in a way. You know, you want to, you, you, you the actors want to work with each other, but we're also in a way pleasing somebody. Somebody has to say, yeah. now we move on, we got that scene. Right. So it's a, who that is is vitally important and it's, it's hard to put it into words. They're all different. Uh, 
some are great storytellers, some are great working uh, with actors. Um, Sean is, is new, uh, very knowledgeable about story and film, and probably a little less used to working with actors. I don't know exactly, but uh, perfect instincts for it. I always found him just, I always agreed with his, I could sense what he felt, and I always felt the same. It's, it's bad when you feel it's good, and the director doesn't feel it's good. That's when it goes wrong. Yeah. There's, there's versions of that which are bad. Or, or the director thinks it's great, and you're like, no, it's not great. So the thing you want is everybody to sort of feel the same thing at the same time. And uh, that works with some people, and sometimes it doesn't. And I felt it worked with, with Sean. And I wish I could be more articulate about mm -hmm. it. But. And Giza, I mean, you, you've made fewer films, but Laszlo Nemes is, is one of our great directors. His new film, Sunset, is going to be opening within the next few months. Um, and that's a film that has no music, right? Son of Saul. I, they, Son of Saul, yeah. As opposed to, there's a kind of musical, as, as I suggested, construction and presence. Can you just compare what it is that Laszlo Nemes and Sean Snyder... Oh, they couldn't be more different. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, it's hard to talk behind his back, but he, he's an extremely disciplined uh, guy. Uh, it's sort of... Uh, his way or the highway, don't quote me, but so it's less collaboration than, than Sean. It, it could be because I really got to know Sean really well before, before starting shooting, but I felt so comfortable and free. And there were maybe one or two times when I felt like, Sean, I know, I know the sun is setting, I know, but I just want, please, one more take. Just one more take, trust me. <laughs> I am a rookie, you know, I became an actor in my mid-40s. I'm not at all, you know, Matthew. Matthew knows the ins and outs, such an expert, his body, everything. You can just, you can throw him in and he's gonna. So true. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was understating it. So, so, um, Laszlo feel, feels, uh, you know, the, the type of, uh, he, he's in a very, very controlling sort of thing, which, which is a type of director. You know, I, there's a famous anecdote about a Hungarian film director who's, who said, now take the cigarette third from the right from the back. The third cigarette from the right. So there are directors like that. It's basically a dictator and the actor is sort of an object of his vision and he's gonna make it through and it doesn't matter if you come up with something. It's, 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 so, but these are great directors at the same time. There's no one recipe that, you know, so I'm just saying like, with Sean, it was such, such warm experience, totally, totally uh, rewarding. No, and, and maybe I'm perhaps wrong to even ask for a comparison because when you're making a film about Auschwitz and you're trying to delimit yeah. information within the frame, when you're trying to make it on the one hand, austere, and on the other hand, immersive, yeah. then obviously you've got a different agenda than somebody who's making a film that tweaks genres, I mean, that brings, I think, dark humor into grief and mourning. I mean, that's a very unusual thing yeah. to be doing. And you also have, 
wonderful things out of left field. I think one of my favorite moments is when Sandra, the black woman, um, comes out. I think her line was, uh, the security person who catches them lets them go after hearing about the wife's cancer and tells Shmuel, Jesus loves you. That was just like a magical moment. I don't know if that was in the script or that emerged on the set, but... That, that was in the script, yeah. That's great. I, you know, I, I feel, and, and you know, I, I had so many folks who, who had my back and who believed, you know, in, in what we were, were doing. And as sort of these limitations are being hurled at you and you have a, you know, a 10... Uh, Shot, shot list, and you can only do three. You can only do, you know, your your singles. Pick a size, your singles, and a, and a wide. Um, Jason, who, who I said is here tonight, you know, was was a huge rock for me uh, in terms of trust our script, trust our story. That's what this movie is about, and trust our actors. And if it's a choice between switching lenses or switching angles and getting another take off of these guys through the lens of Javi Jimenez in that one place. It was just trust what we're, we're doing in an economical way. And I, and I do think that, that that economy, you know, serves the film in a, in a really beautiful way because there's so much surrealism and absurdism going on that, that you know, we're back into that corner and, and you, you run with it. Sure. We're going to raise the lights a little. We have a few minutes for questions from the audience, but if we could get lights so that we can better see and then I can see hands and repeat the questions. So if someone hears me, put the light up on the audience some more. Yes, soon. Okay, I can sort of see. Uh, okay, I see one hand right there and then one on the aisle and then there's two in the back. Go ahead, yes. Yeah, I was just, can you hear in the back or should I just quickly summarize the thank you for making a film because she also lost her mother and the, the entire process of grieving, this, this film spoke to it. And at the end, there is the sense that these two men are not finished with each other. So this is a question that's kind of interesting, especially because Alessandro Nivola's in the back. Yeah. Because he came to this project, having just played uh, in, in the orthodox world of the film Disobedience, was the experience of that film something that he was able to bring into the world of this film? Even if it was spiritual as opposed to yeah. a practical. Um, well, Alessandro uh, was cast in Disobedience after we had sort of started our, our venture together, and it was, uh, 
And Emily had just been in a, a short film where she played a Hasidic woman yes. prior to our adventure. Um, and I think it, 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 it made it rich in these, in these spiritual kindred ways and also in very practical ways because uh, we had had, um, I mean, Geza has expertise. I had done research and, 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 and made some inroads into the, into the community on the script, but it was Alessandro's um, consultant who was in the Hasidic community in, in Brooklyn, who he worked with in, incredibly closely on disobedience, who then turned around and, and came onto set with us and became the, the on-set consultant for, for the film. And, and it was very important to us that we, that we had that authenticity. And both yeah. men had very big hearts in the yeah. film. On the aisle, yes? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm lucky enough to know Sean and Jason for a very long time, and you know what he's quite impressed. Mm. Um, as your father is, I'm sure. Uh, and Matthew, I was almost fired for showing Ferris Bueller to seventh graders. <laughs> he says he was almost fired almost for showing <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off to seventh graders many years ago. Yeah. Just to repeat, the two questions are, Sean Snyder majored in religion at Harvard. How did that feed into this? And since his co-writer, Jason Begay, was a few years apart in school, how did they get together? And did they co-write the screenplay literally in the same room or in separate situations? Um, I, knew, I always knew that I wanted to, to play music and, and make movies, and that passion came from, from my parents and, and from my dad. Um, I, Annette, I'll tell you that I, that I wanted, there, there was a large part of me that wanted to study film studies at Columbia, but I got waitlisted. So. So awkward. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not on the graduate admissions committee, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I knew that, uh, that not going straight to film school, that a liberal arts education was going to be incredibly important for me personally. And also this idea that you could learn craft, but what are you going to say with that, that craft? Um, uh, I studied religion because I had my own spiritual fascinations and intellectual fascinations with it. And it's amazing with this film, all of the threads that are brought together from my very circuitous route in life, you know, the, the personal, the emotional. So you talked about the music and the singer-songwriter in me. And, and um, religion, there's always been a thematic obsession there with, with me that's obviously very personal. And what I sort of studied as, as an undergrad uh, was what was called the modern West, but I was very fascinated with uh, the idea of the, the religions that we create for ourselves and our right to personal meaning and how we, we in relation to our cultures of origin and also above and beyond, and, and sometimes it's a difficult conversation between the two, how we um, find meaning for ourselves and how we create our own rituals around that intensely personal meaning. Um, so that's always been, again, a personal spiritual search, but also a very intellectual obsession, and I think it, it plays out in a lot of my work and a lot of the ideas that I have moving forward. Um, so it felt very full circle to, to, to land at a, at a film that was about religion and very, you know, 
um, validating of the expense of an undergraduate education in some you know, intangible way. Um, uh, Jason and I, uh, I, in my early 20s, I went back and I taught at my old high school. So Charlie Redler, Mr. Redler was our, our uh, uh, history teacher and directed theater. Um, and Jason was a senior when I was working at the school as a substitute teacher and, and working in the arts as well. Um, and Jason was applying to film school and our joker is that our first collaboration was his film school application. He would leave class and find where I was subbing and I would hand out the assignments to the students and we'd sit and talk about movies. Um, and Jason's always been very mature and very cinematically mature. And uh, as he went off to film school, there was this sense of you're, you're paving the road, I'm not helping you with this application selflessly, I, I wanna work on your movies. And then while Jason was in film school, he brought me in, you know, he would show me his scripts. We wound up writing a, a feature together that he brought me in on. Then I wanted to direct my first short and Jason um, had a camera and, and was studying to be a DP in his undergrad and Jason helped me make my first short. Jason helped me submit my application to NYU. And now Jason is at NYU and I helped him submit his application. There's been this, after over a, a, a decade, we have this incredible, um, shorthand, we complement and we supplement each other in exactly the right measure. And Jason's a, an incredible director in his own right. And the ideas that he comes up with that I write on and the ideas that I come up with that he writes on are very, very different. And yet we, we get each other. Um, we were writing the script at times in person, at times while well, I had a one-month-old over Skype and at 3 a.m. when Jason was in L.A. Um, but it was this, this back and forth, back and forth, and, and a lot of it was making, you know, number one, Jason as the, as the Albert to my Shmuel, as the Goy in the relationship. Um, I'm Jewish, by the way, you know that. Okay, half or a quarter, half, yeah. <laughs> and maybe, ja maybe Wait, Jason. on your mother's my, side? My mom, yeah. So. More than half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, stop the, you stopped the thought, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jason, for, for the non-Jewish audience, was very much able to help filter, like, I don't need that explained to me, I do need that explained to me. But more than anything else, I think it was, again, this, this was therapeutic for me, writing about my own grief and processing my own grief through art, and the way that we made each other laugh. And we always knew that, that, that this idea was darkly comic, but the process of writing it was sort of weighing how we surprised ourselves without how much humor we thought it could actually hold and, and how cathartic laughing while looking at something so dark could be. No, I mean, look, if you just think back to some of the scenes, I love the line, it's not for cocktails, it's forensics. You know, that kind of humor or the little boys trying to get the dibuk out of the toe and blowing the shofar. Um, there are moments in the film that, that for me made it a very different kind of experience than oh, this is some film about Jewish mourning. No, it, it's actually about trying to come to terms with loss and finding a very unlikely humor or buoyancy um, at various moments in the film. Okay, there was a, uh, all right, there's a, a young woman and then a gentleman, one behind the other. Go ahead. The, what is your thought for the rain during the burial? It's part of the, the ritualistic 
Was it for you part of a ritualistic cleansing? Um, mainly to make them suffer. Um, <laughs> we were legitimately in a, uh, a Jewish cemetery shooting overnight with, with rain machines. Um, there's, a, there's a lot about the rain for me, and, and one, of the, um, one of the places that it, that it starts is genre and cinema and this sense of, I mean, you go back to, to, to Frankenstein and then Young Frankenstein, you, you were on set cracking Young Frankenstein jokes, but this, this sense of this can't, you know, this can't get any worse and then the rain comes and is the rain, you know, God trying to stop them. But, but more than anything, it's, it's could we take something that became epic and familiar in that, in that cinematic way? We've, we've seen this in the genre, the, the exhumation in the rain, um, but then can you be watching it and can you take genre that's awkward and uncomfortable and then somehow flip it in, subvert it and flip it into the poetic? And, and what you picked up on, this idea of, of uh, purification, this idea of does the, does the rain, you know, help them get away with it, <laughs> possibly? Is, is the rain God, you know, frowning upon what they're doing or God helping them out in a way? Or is the rain God, you know, the manifestation of tears? <laughs> In, in some regard. I, I, not to get too film geeky, but think about the end of Sol Solaris, uh, where it's raining on the planet, and this is a planet that has taken the emotions of everybody and, and put them into uh, physical expressions, and does the rain then become, you know, tears. I think that, that it's mythological, it's cinematic, it's, it's poetic, and it made their lives very difficult. Gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> so there? This is a question about the decor, the interiors, which reminded this gentleman of his grandmother's home in Coney Island in the 70s. This seemed to be a bit more sparse and graceful at the same time. We um, did a lot of research. I brought my production de designer to um, one of our Hasidic consultants in, in that home in, in Brooklyn. And she, you know, when we were sitting and having a conversation about the script, she was taking, you know, feverish notes about what, what the apartment looked like. And that apartment was more aged and more lived in. But this idea of um, the, you know, the very limited art on the wall, some, somewhere, somewhere in there, I believe, or no, it might have been in, in the, the yeshiva where we got your friend's art. I don't, I don't even remember. I'm trying to remember where that was. That's a tangent. Um, uh, but this idea of the, the mezuzahs everywhere. Obviously, there, there, there was um, the, uh, the plastic over the tables. And um, the couch. And the, and the couch. Uh, it, it was sort of, yeah, researched and, and, and observed. And that idea of, of um, the, you know, minimalistic and a kind of, you know, like a kind of elegance to those spaces, but the white walls. And I think that, that, that amazingly as well, we, we were looking for our locations and we couldn't find, you know, we had the widow's home, we had Albert's home and we had Shmuel's home, and we couldn't find any that were working. And we found this one ranch house that was on the market. Um, the family was, was selling it uh, because the grandmother had passed away, so they had their own grief story. Um, 
but the bottom uh, looked like it was from the 70s, and that was what we used for Albert's home. The top floor is what we used for Shmuel's home, and there was this little attachment in the back that we put wallpaper up and used for, for the widow's home. Wow. Yeah. The limitations define the possibilities. <laughs> yes. Um, you all knew going in that this was going to be a low-budget film. How does one go about financing a film like this? Is it the same or totally different from a higher-budget film? Um, through through a lot of e economy and and again, you know, the, this film has always found its its champions, and, and it, it started with the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, who gave us a hundred thousand dollar grant um, to make the movie, and that you know wasn't going to get us that far in my plan A of taking that money into the woods and, and trying to make it, you know, naively, who knows how that would have gone. But you take that and you have this amazing institution that has put a stamp of approval on it, and you take that out into the world. And, um, you know, the film went through, through these iterations, and, and you know, I, I had a fear as a first-time director sort of, of working with a higher budget because you want to make a movie that lets you make another movie. So some of my instincts were, were keeping it down and it was getting, getting larger than I ever imagined getting to make a first movie for. And that was because of our, our producers and because of their belief in the movie and because they found people who championed the film and believed in it. And it was, you know, little bit by little bit pieced together with a, you know, a tax uh, deduction on top from the state of New York because we can shoot films here and they, and they support uh, film production in, in this state. Uh, but it was constantly doing the math and constantly doing re the reiterations and constantly getting the script to fit into that budget and also maintaining some amount of ambition. There's things that you're never supposed to do on a low-budget film. They say that a film, the budget, our, our budget should take place in one house and have four characters and never move from that location. And we had so many locations, they tell you never to shoot with kids, never to shoot with livestock, <laughs> never to shoot with, with a rain machine <laughs> in a cemetery overnight. <laughs> um, and we, some, we somehow pulled it off because we had you know, some grace and a lot of love. Now, I, I know there are more questions, and I didn't even get to ask a whole slew of questions that I had, especially for Matthew Broderick, because when I think back to how he held his own with the giants like Marlon Brando or Warren Beatty, Christopher Walken, et cetera, but I think we have to close and, and sort of acknowledge that it's not just how difficult it is to get a film financed and made. I also know the stories of how difficult it is to get a finished film out there? How do you get people to see it in a market where there are thousands of films being submitted to festivals? And I think it's a wonderful thing that Tribeca picked it up, and that was where I saw it, for example. It's being distributed starting February 6th, I believe, by Good Deed Entertainment. So this film will be visible in theaters, and I hope you tell others to see it. And I think the, the main thing is to find the right actors. That's always, I believe, the key thing, not just in terms of marquee value, who's going to go see it because there's a name, but finding someone like Geza Rorig to play Shmuel and someone like Matthew Broderick to play Albert. Once you've got those two, you are halfway there to what I hope will be the ultimate commercial as well as critical success of the film. 
Thank you for coming on a cold night and thank the three of you, you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.